Thank you for listening to the Soul City Church podcast. Be sure to follow us on our Facebook and Instagram at Soul City Church. For more information, visit us on our website, soulcitychurch.com. morning, Soul City. It is good to be with you, and I am so excited that we get to close out this uh, beautiful month of, of Black History Month. And as a church, you know, we have paused to celebrate some Chicago legends. And today, I actually wanted to highlight the many Black legends that are among us on our staff and our elder team here at Soul City Church. Listen, I have, there's going to be a moment. You're going to get to bless them. Listen, I have the privilege of working with these men and women in the trenches of ministry, and they are wise and sacrificial. They're thoughtful. They are filled with character and integrity. They pray and they listen to God. They bring depth and kingdom-minded dimension to who we are as a church, and they bring the fullness of who they are. And even though this is a month about black history, I am beyond grateful for the hope that I have for our collective future because of these people, because of these amazing men and women that are a bright light of love and hope and joy in this church. So I want you to know who they are. So I want you to help me bless Brandon Henderson, our transformation pastor, Allison Page, our director of marketing and communication, Bianca Lackings, our communication coordinator, Dr. Alexandria Crumble, director of the lead pastor's office, and now the choir director, Mark Smith, our executive pastor of finance, Ramona Bamboche, our House of Hope operations manager, Julian Ford, our music director, Tamra Durbin, and elder Cliff Goins, who's our elder chair, and Janelle Goins, who is also an elder. Will you help me bless these amazing, amazing people? Yes, they make this church better. And here's the thing, they make me better. They make me better. And I am so, so grateful for who they are and what they bring to Soul City Church. Now listen, for the last few weeks, uh, we've been looking at red flags in relationships. And the first week, uh, Jared had us look at the red flag that can exist in our families specifically when we're not willing to look back at the patterns in our family of origin. And then in the second week, he helped us look at the red flag that shows up when it comes to our identity and allowing someone else to define who we are. Last week, John helped us look at the red flag of selfishness and how to not use one another, but instead be used by God in one another's lives. And and noticing red flags is critical to growing healthy relationships. And, and I don't know about you, but I have found that, you know, noticing the red flags that are kind of easy to detect, those are the ones that are easy to do something about. Like when someone mentions to you that their mom still comes to their house to do their laundry, red flag. Red flag, right? Come on. I mean, that's an easy one. When someone mentions that they don't like Chicago-style pizza, I mean, come on. Red flag, my friend. Red flag, right? Now, this is probably the worst of them all. If someone tells you that their favorite football team is the Green Bay Packers, you just got to walk away. 
You just gotta walk away. You might wanna carry one of these around in your pocket, just wave it and walk away. The noticeable and overt red flags that are easy to spot, those are the ones that are easy to deal with, right? But what about those sneaky ones? What about those ones that are more covert and they take a while to spot? What do you do when a red flag is hard to detect? You know, researchers and psychologists, sociologists and, and relationship experts, they all agree that this one thing, this often hidden red flag, if it remains in a relationship, that the relationship will eventually be ruined. And the covert killer of relationships is the red flag of unforgiveness. The red flag of unforgiveness. And what's so challenging to detect with unforgiveness is that it always presents itself usually as something else, right? It often shows up as judgment or resentment. Maybe it shows up as, as gossip, slander, or, or jealousy. Maybe it shows up in a spirit of vengeance or, or somebody has a cold and, and hardened heart. These are the presenting characteristics. And once you spot them in someone, it's usually safe to assume that it can stem back to some kind of unforgiveness in the person's life. Now listen, I imagine in some ways we all know what this is like. I bet that you can even look at the different moments in your life through the lens of kind of a before and an after. Before something painful took place and then after something painful took place. Before the betrayal and then after the betrayal. Before that hurtful breakup or, or that divorce and after that hurtful breakup divorce. And whether it's big or small in your life, I'm willing to bet that you have some version, some version of your own before and after. And unless we work all the way through whatever needs to be forgiven, we keep recycling that pain because that's what unforgiveness does unforgiveness recycles pain but forgiveness releases pain unforgiveness listen unforgiveness was into recycling way before it was cool it is committed it is committed to keeping your pain alive and finding all kinds of ways to repurpose it in your life Maybe through building up walls of self-protection so that you're, you're never hurt again in a relationship. Maybe it's through, through making sure that you're never vulnerable with another person so that you don't run the risk of experiencing betrayal again. And it makes so much sense to me why we recycle our pain instead of releasing it. Because holding on, holding on is way more instinctual than letting go, isn't it? As people, as people, holding on, it gives us this, this sense of security, doesn't it? But letting go feels vulnerable and scary. But how do we release? How do we release the pain that unforgiveness has in our lives? How do we release 
the power that others hold over our lives, that's what I want to wrestle with today because I suspect, I suspect that many of us, we have this red flag waving somewhere, waving somewhere in our own lives. And I believe God wants to bring us an experience of new healing and freedom. And I am believing, I am believing with all my heart that some of us, we're going to experience that in a fresh and redemptive way today. That, that is my hope. And for just a moment, I, I want to look at a fascinating exchange of forgiveness in the Old Testament. It is between David and Saul, and it's actually found in 1 Samuel 24, which if you're here in the room, we'd love for you to grab a Bible. It's found on page 234. Uh, We're also going to have it up on the screen, and for those of you that are watching online, you'll see it there as well. But I want to give you a little bit of context to this, this story and this relationships so that you understand what happens here. Saul was actually the very first king of Israel, and most scholars believe that he ruled for about 20 years. And during that time, Saul became erratic. He he became this unstable king. And the Bible says that he was tormented by an evil spirit. And part of how David and Saul's relationship began was through David actually playing the harp for Saul because it calmed his spirit. So in the beginning, Saul loved David. He appreciated him, but the relationship quickly became tenuous because David was eventually anointed to become the next king. And the people of Israel, they shifted all of their devotion from Saul to David. So Saul, he he grew wildly jealous of David. And to make things more complex, David goes and marries Saul's daughter, Michal. And and then he becomes best friends with his son, Jonathan. So there's lots and lots of blurred boundaries here. This family is like a TV producer's dream for a reality show, right? And and the story and the moment that we're going to look at is between David and Saul. And David knew that Saul had gone mad. He he had just lost his mind and that he was trying to to actually kill David. So David fled. He went into hiding in an attempt to save his own life. So we're going to pick up at at 1 Samuel 24.1. And this is what it says. After Saul returned from pursuing the the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of Engedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel, and he set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now, don't you just love the Bible? Don't you just love the Bible? I mean, when you got to go, you got to go. And they decided to record it in the word of God, right? I'm just relieved that the passage didn't give us any more specifics. So David goes on. David and his men were far back in the cave. And the men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of. When he said to you that I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up, cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So David has this moment, right? He has this moment right in front of him. He's got the support 
of his friends. He has reason to take revenge. I mean, he's literally being hunted by Saul in an army of 3,000 men. And David knew, David knew that he was destined to become the king. And this would have just fast-tracked the whole thing. He would have just walked right into taking over the throne. And to say that Saul was vulnerable, (laughs) right? It's an understatement. And instead of taking out the enemy, David takes off a corner of Saul's robe. David makes a very interesting decision. Now, most scholars believe that the part David would have cut off from Saul's robe was the corner of the sitzi. And in the ancient world, one's authority or power rested in the hem of the garment. And for someone like Saul that, that was in authority, it was an extension of their royal essence. So how interesting is it that the part that David went after was the part that revealed Saul's authority. Now listen, I had never actually thought about this before, but as I was studying and as I was researching for this message, it caused me to wonder, did David cut off the corner of Saul's robe that reminded David of how much power Saul had in his own life? Was David's instinct to cut off the part of Saul's robe that had symbolized power because David no longer wanted to give Saul so much power in his life? Like, could it be David didn't want to kill Saul, but David wanted to kill the power that Saul had in his life? David wanted, he wanted to be released from recycling that pain. He he wanted to to let that go. And listen to what, what occurs next in this passage. It says, afterward, David was conscious stricken. He was conscious stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David sharply rebuked his men, and he did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went away. David was conscious stricken. David was aware of what he did. He he wasn't unconscious about his decision, he was convicted about it. And I imagine the conscious, stricken emotion, it wasn't about a piece of fabric that he was now holding in his hand, but it was about the unforgiveness that he was holding in his heart. Because look at, look at how he speaks to Saul in this moment. It says, then David actually went out of the cave and called out to Saul, my Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave and some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on the Lord because he's the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. 
see that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers comes evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog, a flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. And may he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. Listen, a very critical thing occurs as David talks to Saul. He moves from recycling what has been done to releasing it to God. He says, may the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge the wrongs done, but my hand, my hand will not touch you. David knows when he says that from evil doers comes evil deeds, he does not want evil to live in his own heart. He he doesn't want to carry that around in his life. He doesn't want to keep recycling that kind of pain. David doesn't want unforgiveness to live in his heart, even though he has reason, right? He has reason for revenge. Saul is hunting him down. But David knows, he knows he will actually never be free if he lives unforgiven. He'll never be free if he lives unforgiven. And something happened in that cave for David. He did not walk out the same way that he walked in. David decided. He decided to release the pain. And unfortunately, Saul decided to continue to recycle it. And David realized, David realized that, that he was never going to be able to change the past, but he could change his future. And, and I don't know every story that is represented here in this room or those of you that are worshiping with us online or, or those of you listening to the podcast later, but I know enough to know that every one of us has some before and some afters. Perhaps it it was an event or a whole series of hurt that grew over time. Maybe someone turned out to be different or they didn't do what they were supposed to do or, or maybe they didn't protect you the way that you were supposed to be protected or they said something and you have tried to let it go but you just keep replaying those words in your head. Or maybe... Maybe you've made some mistakes and you kind of live with this low-grade guilt over something in your past and you feel like you can't escape or or, or course-correct from your own regrets and whether the pain came into your present story via someone else or through your own choices, holding on to unforgiveness always creates a domino effect in our lives that negatively impacts every part of us. That's because unforgiveness, it needs somewhere to live. 
So it chooses to spread out into every single room of your life. It spreads out to our heart and our mind and our body and our soul and our relationships. I mean, how many of you have heard the phrase that time heals all wounds? Listen, that's not true when there's unforgiveness. Because with time, unforgiveness infects all wounds. And they grow bigger and bigger. Unforgiveness takes the pain from the past and it makes it the reality of both the present and the future. And if you, do, if you don't do something about it, unforgiveness will spread like a cancer, impacting your relationship with God, yourself, and everyone else. And what I have learned is that unforgiveness that consumes you, it will eventually control you. Unforgiveness unforgiveness that consumes you, it will eventually control you. And if it consumes you, its goal is to take you out. Unforgiveness, it it keeps the wound open. It, It actually, it breaks boundaries in our lives, allowing anger and resentment to just roam freely throughout our lives. Unforgiveness keeps us in a destructive relationship, even if it's just in our minds. Unforgiveness is the cause of so much pain, and I have yet to see it solve one problem. But forgiveness, it builds new boundaries. It puts healing in motion. Forgiveness, it has the power to transform a painful past into a purposeful future. It's like cutting off the corner of the robe. It's saying, I don't want this unforgiveness to cut off my heart anymore. And forgiving what feels unforgivable actually has a way of forming a new way to remember what happened in the past. Because listen, forgiveness doesn't change the past, but it has the power to change the future. It It doesn't change the past. But friends, it has the power to change your future. And over the years, I have had so many conversations with people as as they wade through these, these murky waters of unforgiveness. And I have had to do my own work with choosing forgiveness in my life when it was hard. And when the honest truth is that I didn't want to forgive. And I have found that people choose to stay unforgiven because they either believe that the person that they need to forgive is undeserving of the forgiveness and it might somehow justify their actions or they don't want to forgive what they fear they might forget. And whether it's, it's undeserving or unforgettable, my question is not about if they deserve forgiveness, it's what do you deserve? What do you deserve? Do you you want to live with recycled pain of unforgiveness? Or do you want the redemptive peace of Jesus to flow through your life? You know, in this last year, I I found myself in um, such a, a painful experience where I felt the sting of betrayal in a friendship. 
And the pain was significant and strong. And I felt justified in my anger and in my hurt. And yet, the longer I held on to the unforgiveness, the more I allowed the unforgiveness to consume me, the more control it had over me. And I, I did all the things that I tell you not to do. I wanted to, to rally all the support of the people that were like, we're with you, Jeannie. That was really terrible what they did to you. I wanted to be justified in my heart. I didn't want to let it go because it felt so wrong and hurtful. But friends, as simply as I can say this, God convicted me. Convicted me. And I just realized I need to release this power and this pain that, that this has over my life. And so I, I walked through a personal and a, and a private process of forgiveness. And you know, it actually, it never happened with the person. The exchange actually never happened with the person. It was between me and God and a few trusted guides and mentors. And it was a journey. And you know, a, a number of months later, this person that had caused so much pain, um, I found out they were walking through a really hard season um, with the illness of a loved one in their life. And I felt the Holy Spirit just say to me, pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for the healing of, the, of their loved one. And, and so I did. I, I, I committed to pray. And after a couple of days of, of praying consistently, I felt that little nudge again. And this time I, I felt the Holy Spirit say, tell the person that you're praying for their loved one. I was like, Holy Spirit, I'm out. <laughs> like, I, I was willing up until that moment, right? Like, come on. Lord, no. I got to find a Bible verse for why that is not right. <laughs> but the prompting didn't go away. And so I did. And I reached out. And I told them that I was praying for their loved one. And what I realized is that I was only able to do that because I was no longer recycling the pain. I, I had released it. I was free. I was able to actually pray for healing and blessing in their life. And listen, there is so much that is a mystery to me about the Bible. But the Bible is not mysterious when it comes to forgiveness. It is utterly clear. Mark eleven twenty five. 25. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Forgiveness is a commandment. But I think many of us, we hold out on offering forgiveness because we think it means we have to reconcile and trust again. And listen, forgiveness is required. Reconciliation and trust are optional. 
Forgiveness is all about what was. It's about the past. Reconciliation, it's all about what is. It's the present. And trust is all about what if in the future. Forgiveness has to do with the past. It's about letting go, not holding on to what was. And you can offer forgiveness whether or not the other person receives it or even knows about it. I think it's why Jesus said, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And reconciliation is all about the present. It means the other person actually apologizes and accepts forgiveness. It it takes two people to reconcile. Romans says that if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And there may be relationships where you experience forgiveness, but not reconciliation. It it may not be wise for you to reconcile some relationships for the sake of peace in your present life. But when reconciliation does happen, that relationship needs new trust to be built. And trust has to do with the future. It, It means the other person has demonstrated through their behavior that they are worthy of your trust. You see, while forgiveness is something that we freely offer, trust must be earned. It must be earned. And many people are afraid of asking for forgiveness because they don't want to admit their flaws. They don't want to own up to their mistakes. And what I have to say about that is, while seeking forgiveness does acknowledge error, Do you know what else it acknowledges? Growth. It acknowledges transformation. And I think so many of us, we just forget the power of of an honest, heartfelt, and humble apology when it's given to us and when we offer it, right? It, It changes the whole tone of a relationship. And many of us, we don't know how to do this. And literally, the simplest anatomy of an apology is is literally just remorse plus responsibility plus the request for repair. I'm sorry. I I take responsibility for this thing that I I said or I did. And I want to do better. I desire to do it differently. And there are far too many of us myself included. And we need to get our butts out of our apologies. You're going to get that one later. We apologize, but... Friends, you need to get your butt out of your apology. Do you get it now? Rewatch it. You'll get it. We need to stop focusing on what the other person did or did not do. And if the apology is only making you feel better and the other person feels worse, something was missing in that apology. Apologies are what move us from unforgiveness to forgiveness. And listen, even after 25 years of marriage, this is something Jarrett and I have to practice regularly in our relationship. Not two weeks ago. We were out to dinner 
we're celebrating Valentine's Day and we're having an amazing conversation and, and talking about our relationship and, and ways that we want to grow and, and get better in our communication. And, and I, I honestly don't remember what happened, but we both started to experience some defensiveness. And, and something shifted in the conversation and in a matter of seconds, in a matter of seconds, truly. I, I don't know what happened, but we were shut down. <laughs> and we were angry. And we were clearly communicating with our body language and with our big eyes <laughs> that we were unwilling to forgive. Neither of us started with remorse a responsibility or even a request for a repair. And that poor server, when he came back to the table, I mean, he could definitely tell the Valentine's conversation took a left turn. We were a whole vibe at that table. And here's, here's the whole truth. At the moment, I did not want to forgive Jarrett because being right became more important than being reconciled. And sadly, your lead pastors, we left the restaurant still frustrated with each other. We had to stop at Target because, you know, it's not a real date unless you go to Target. <laughs> and we got home and it took us a good 30 minutes to lower our defenses. We, we both paused we both took a breath, we both shared, this is my regret. This is where I need to take responsibility. Here's how I wanna do it better next time. And friends, I just wanna to say to you, forgiveness is worth it. Forgiveness is worth it. It is worth it. There should have been like 10,000 more amens. Forgiveness is worth it. Every single time it's worth it. Every single time. I have never once regretted being forgiven or offering forgiveness. And I believe there are some here today in this room and in our online church, and you need to experience the fresh freedom of forgiveness in your life. There are things that you are holding on to. And it is time to do your own cutting of the rope, to cut off the power and the authority that unforgiveness has in your life. For some, it's things that were done to you. And for others, it's the things that you have done. And here's what I know about forgiveness. It is both a process and a decision. And you hear us say this often. Our mission is to lead people into a transforming relationship with Jesus. And there are two critical words in that mission. The first is this, transforming. That's the process. It is a journey. It may require the support of a counselor or a therapist. It may require one of our House of Hope groups. Transformation is a process. But the second word in that sentence, the most important word is the name of Jesus. Because that's the decision. And the most critical part of the decision was already made for you. 
In Jesus' last hours on the cross, he literally changed your ability to make the same decision with others when he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. You have been forgiven. You have been forgiven. You have been forgiven. And being forgiven changes everything. It changes everything. And and if you know there is someone that you need to forgive, you know it. You've been thinking about it for the last 20, 30 minutes. If you know there's someone that you need to forgive or you know you need to be forgiven, I simply just want to invite you to stand and I want to pray for you today. And I want to let you know that I'm standing with you. I'm standing with you. If you've been holding on to any kind of unforgiveness in your life, Mark eleven twenty five. 25, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. I just want to invite you to open your hands as a physical way of your body communicating what your heart wants to do, to let go, to let go. And so Jesus, we come before you now and we say thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving us. Thank you for cleansing us, for making our sins white as snow. And Jesus, we want to do the same. We do not want to be bound up by unforgiveness. So would you give us your grace and your mercy to freely offer forgiveness right now? And God, some of us, we have felt so chained up. We have felt so bound up. We have felt the power of unforgiveness in our life. And you tell us that in the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that there is power in your name. And so in the name of Jesus, we pray that those chains would fall off. We pray that your fresh forgiveness would just flow through this room. It would flow through our minds. It would flow through our hearts, God. It would flow through our relationships, that we would be a forgiven people, God. That when you say that the world will know me by their love, God, that that's what they would see. They would see people walking with your fresh forgiveness in their life. So Jesus, I pray this through the power, the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's children together said, amen and amen.